Amen. You guys may be seated. And if you have your Bibles, you can open up to Exodus chapter 1. <clears throat> Exodus chapter 1. We're going to spend a few weeks uh, in the book, in the first few chapters of Exodus. And, uh, and I'm thinking through us revisiting it next year. So typically, Coastal at large, we, uh, so we went <clears throat> the spring of each year for a few years preaching through the book of Genesis. We'd preach a few chapters each year, and, uh, and that's the intent behind Exodus. And so uh, that's what we hope to do. Um, and uh, we are this morning going to cover a lot of ground um, because we're going to give, I'm going to attempt to give you some sort of overview of Exodus chapter 1 and Exodus chapter 2. And so this is way beyond a 20,000 foot view. This is a, we're flying above that view um, this morning. And, and as with any sermon, you end up having to pick out what you um, un- unfortunately have to neglect. And so um, you, there may be questions that arise from this text that uh, we didn't have time to cover this morning. And my prayer is, is that you're able to work through that, um, those questions with your small group. Um, but Exodus chapter 1, the way I'm going to do it uh, in a way that is hopefully helpful is I'm going to read the section uh, that I want to cover, and then I'm going to preach that section, and then we're going to move to the next section. And so this morning, there's going to be three sections of Scripture, and by the end of it, Lord willing, we'll be at verse 10 of chapter 2 in the book of Exodus. And so I'm going to start uh, with verse 5 of Exodus chapter 1. So I'd encourage you to open your Bible and look there. Moses wrote these words under under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He said this, All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Verse 8, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them or wisely with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies. They fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh's store cities. Pithom and Ramses, but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel, so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. And all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to be able to open your word again, Lord, and we're going to cover a large amount of scripture this morning, and I ask for your help, Lord. Help me to say things that are grounded in your word. And Lord, I pray that we as a congregation um, would in humility be conformed to the image of your son, Jesus Christ, having spent time in your word together this morning. And we give you all the praise and all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this historical count of the Exodus, it leaves off, if you're familiar with the book of Genesis at all, it leaves off with where the book of Genesis uh, stopped, which is with the death uh, of Joseph in Egypt. And, and really, the first 
two chapters of Exodus are, are setting the stage, if you will, for God to raise up Moses to deliver his people out of Egyptian slavery. And, and more than likely, when you hear uh, the word Exodus, when you hear about the book of Exodus, that's what you're thinking of. You're thinking of, of Moses, uh, by God's grace, leading the uh, Israelites out of Egyptian slavery. That's the movement of this narrative. So certainly hold that in your mind as we uh, work through the text over the next uh, few weeks. But in our immediate setting, we see that, that Joseph, he was in Egypt when he died, and his brothers also were in Egypt when they died. And we see that the people of Israel, the text says that they grew in number, that they were mighty in number, that they were strong in number. And a new king who was either ignorant of Joseph and, and the prosperity that Joseph brought to Egypt or who uh, willingly uh, or, or uh, stubbornly refused to acknowledge Joseph and all that Joseph did uh, for Egypt out of some form of jealousy, um, uh, hated the prosperity of the Israelites. And so this Pharaoh either didn't know Joseph, he, for, he, he didn't know all the benefits Joseph brought to uh, Egypt through his, uh, just the, uh, his wisdom and his fear of God and how that prospered the land, or he refused to acknowledge it. And, but what we know for certain is that Pharaoh hated the Israelites. He hated the Israelites. There was this sin of partiality uh, in the heart of Pharaoh that impacted the way that he viewed the Israelites. It impacted the way that he treated uh, the Israelites. Um, and there, there was this fear that he had this fear that, that ruled him, that ruled his heart, these what-ifs. And you can see even in our text this morning, this what-if the Israelites do this? What if they join with our enemies? What if they take over? What if they rise against us? All of these what-ifs that led Pharaoh uh, in his own wickedness and hardness of heart to despair. And because he feared man and because he didn't fear God, he didn't fear Yahweh, uh, it led him, his fear of man led him to act wickedly toward the people of Israel. And a ruler who doesn't fear God but fears man will do all types of, of wicked stuff. Now, in this section of Scripture this morning, I want to I hone in on one verse that I think really does summarize this entire section for us well. Um, and and it's, it's verse 10. I just read it. It says, come, the uh, Pharaoh says this, come, let us deal shrewdly, or let us, uh, it's another way of saying, let us be wise lest they, lest the Israelites multiply. And then again, we see these what-if statements. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies. They fight against us. And then they escape from the land. They escape from the land. Okay, Pharaoh says, let's be wise. And we know, for those of us who know the story of the Exodus, we know that Pharaoh's wisdom uh, doesn't lead to the destruction of the Israelites. It leads to his own destruction and his own people, uh, the destruction of his own people. But Pharaoh says, let us be wise. He speaks to, the, um, to his Egyptian companions and says, let us be wise. And in this, this wisdom, this shrewdness, Pharaoh and the Egyptians, they sought to prevent the multiplication of the Israelites. Pharaoh believed that slavery and, um, and bondage uh, would shrink this particular people group. So if you're taking notes, you can, you can jot this down. Pharaoh, 
He increased the burden of the Israelites in, a, in an attempt to thwart God's plan for them. And God's plan for them was multiplication. God's plan for them was multiplication. Pharaoh increased the burdens of the Israelites in an attempt to thwart God's plan for them, which was multiplication. And, and I'm not saying that, that the Israelites, by and large, were a God-fearing people. They had, at this point, been in Egypt for generations, and they, they probably assimilated in large numbers into Egyptian culture quite easily. But ironically enough, and in God's providence, the, the persecution of Pharaoh would drive the Israelites toward Yahweh, toward the one true God, toward the God of Israel. But even before that, it, it was God's covenant with Abraham that prospered Israel, right? It was God's covenant with Abraham that prospered Israel. It wasn't their faithfulness to him, right? Sinful, fallen, broken people, they don't tend to stay faithful. But God who isn't fallen, God who isn't sinful, God who's unchanging, he stays faithful, right? So the prosperity of the Israelites, the multiplying of the Israelites, the, the, them growing in stature, uh, the Israelites being mighty, it wasn't because the Israelites were so great. It wasn't because they were so faithful. It, it's because we have a covenant-keeping God. So Pharaoh, he increases the burdens of the people of Israel through taskmasters so that they would not multiply so that they would not multiply. And the usage of the word multiply, if you're, if you're one of those people that kind of scribble in your Bibles, I'm one of those people, I would underline that word. That's a significant word. It's very interesting. Right? What, do you, what do you think of when you read the word multiply in the Scripture? Right? I think of, of the dominion mandate that God gave to Adam and Eve. Be fruitful and what? And multiply. Genesis chapter 1, verse 22. In fact, this is a theme in the book of Genesis, the book right before Exodus. Right? Not only do we see the word used in relation to Adam and Eve, but we see God use the language to Noah and his family after the flood water subsided in Genesis chapter 8 and in Genesis chapter 9. Right? We see God promise to multiply Abraham's offspring as he makes a covenant with him in Genesis chapter 17. We see God reaffirm the promise in Genesis chapter 20, 22 and Genesis chapter 26. See the word used in Isaac's blessing over Jacob in Genesis chapter 28. We see God command Jacob to multiply in Genesis chapter 35, which is when J Jacob's name is, is changed to Israel. So th there's significance to this word, and there's significance to the word multiply as it relates both to God's covenant and to God's command, God's covenant and his command. God commanded Adam and Eve based on their relationship, their, their, um, their pure relationship with God. It's not hindered at that moment by any sin or any suffering. God commands them to be fruitful and multiply and to have dominion over the earth. Right? God also covenanted that Eve's offspring, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, Eve's offspring would crush the head of the serpent. And, and God, in fact, kept that promise. He kept that covenant in that Jesus Christ came and he crushed the head of the serpent through his life and his death and his resurrection. God also covenanted, or co he commanded, rather, that Noah and his family 
be fruitful and multiply. God also covenanted that he would never destroy all of the living creatures of the earth again and that the earth would continue in its seasons. And God covenanted to Abraham that he would have offspring as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the shore. And God expands Abraham's offspring through the obedience of Jacob being fruitful and multiplying. So the word multiply is closely connected to God's covenant with his people and the command that he's given to his people. But, but the multiplication, multiplying, it isn't just about physical offspring. It's not just about physical offspring. That's important, and it's a part of the, the dominion mandate, but implicit in this is producing spiritual offspring as well. We see this in a passage like Galatians chapter 3, verses 7 and 9. The Apostle Paul, he says, know then that though that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. The Apostle Paul says that that God telling Abraham that all nations through him would be blessed is the equivalent of God preaching the gospel to Abraham. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. I heard we see the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 9, verses 6 to 8. It says, but it's not as though the word of God has failed. Get this, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. And that implicit in that is physical offspring. Not, not everybody is a child of Abraham just because they're physically his offspring. It says, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means, Paul interprets it for us, this means that it's not the children of the flesh, right? It's not physical offspring who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring, those that are in Christ Jesus, their spiritual offspring, right? The bigger command, which also demonstrates God's faithfulness and his covenant, but the bigger command behind multiplication is making worshipers of the triune God. That's the bigger idea, uh, the spiritual, um, uh, enduring spiritual uh, principle or truth behind being fruitful and multiplying is making worshipers of the triune God. As the people of Israel multiplied, they were to teach their children to worship the, uh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Right? A defining characteristic of God's people is multiplication, both physically and more important, spiritually. A defining characteristic of God's people is multiplication, both physically and more, important, and more importantly, spiritually. Right? God's covenant would be kept through the multiplication of the Israelites. And in our text this morning, we have Pharaoh attempting to thwart that, to, to prevent that. Pharaoh, out of the, the hardness of his own heart, he, he hated these aliens from another country. He hated them. He saw them as a threat. He despised them. And in his imagination, his, his fearful imagination, he saw a threat to his own rule if God's people continued to multiply. Therefore, he enslaved them. He, he burdened, burdened them. 
Now, now some of you may see the relevance of this for us, and, and some of you may be scratching your head about the amount of time I've spent on this word multiplication, considering I have two chapters to cover. But <clears throat> the, the spiritual significance, it, it shouldn't be lost on us. Right? Pharaoh increased the burden of the Israelites so that they would forget God, so that they would forget God's covenant, so that they would forget his charge to be fruitful and multiply. And we forget that through the burden of sin. We forget that through the enslaving nature of sin. And and I want to speak to two different types of people on this point this morning. There, There are those of you who have never been free from your burden of sin. And you need to know that the God who made everything, the God who made all things, is the God who provides freedom from the slavery of sin. He provides freedom from the bondage of sin that you're in. And the freedom he provides is through Christ Jesus alone. You were made, you were created to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Yet your sin is preventing you from doing this. You can, right now, this very moment, forsake the burden of your sin by the power of the Holy Spirit, and you can put your faith in Christ Jesus today. The beauty of what Jesus did is that he, he, he took our sin upon himself. He received the just punishment for our sin. He received the just punishment that our sin deserves. And, and, and when Christ went in the tomb with our sins, all right, when he resurrected bodily, he left those sins in the grave. You can be free from the burden of your sin. Right? You can enjoy having your sins forgiven. And so if you're not in Christ this morning, you're, you're enslaved to your sin. Much like the Israelites were enslaved to, the, to, to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians. And just as God, in, uh, just as God provided Moses to lead the Israelites out of Egyptian slavery, so God provided the greater Moses, Christ Jesus, to deliver you from the slavery of sin. You can be forgiven today. And then there's a second person I want to speak to on this point, and that's the, the Christian who's deceived by the spiritual, spiritual pharaoh, the serpent, the accuser, the devil. You really are, if you are in Christ, you really are free of your burden. You're not in slavery to your sin anymore, but, but you keep running back to the burden that you've been freed from and you keep believing the lie that you're still in bondage. And so you've bought into this lie and you're miserable. You're in this constant state of despair. And this has made you depressed and this has made you unproductive for the kingdom of God. You've forgotten your God and you've forgotten how to live in light of having your sins forgiven. And you need to remember that in fact, you are free. You've been brought out of slavery. You can be fruitful and multiply. It was, it was Christ who ultimately reminds us that we can be fruitful and multiply because our, our sins really are forgiven, that when Christ declared from the cross that it is finished, that he actually meant what he said. He really did accomplish our salvation. There really is nothing left to do so that we could be in right standing with God. There's nothing that we bring to the table as it relates to our salvation apart from our sin. And our sins are paid for and our sins are forgiven. 
They're done away with. They're as far as the east is from the west. So Jesus, he reminds us that we can be fruitful and multiply. The scripture calls Jesus the second Adam in Romans chapter five, meaning that he did what the first Adam couldn't do. He did what the first Adam couldn't do. And after Christ accomplished everything necessary for our salvation, what did he do? He restated the dominion mandate that we see in Genesis. And he restated it in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 to 20. I preached this passage just a couple of weeks ago. We know it as the great commission. All authority, Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. In other words, be fruitful and multiply. Your sins are forgiven. You've been reconciled to God. You can do this. You now have, you, you're gonna have the helper that comes. And we see that the helper came in Acts chapter two, the Holy Spirit who indwells us. We really can be fruitful and multiply. This is the task that God's given us and it's God's promise that it's a promise of success in light of the finished work of Jesus Christ. Multiply, multiply. So Pharaoh attempted to thwart God's multiplication plan for the Israelites by increasing their burden. And the same thing happens to us spiritually. Keep looking with me in our text. We're gonna move on to the next section here, starting with verse 15. Promise the back two will go quicker, maybe. We'll see what happens. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shiprah and the other Puah, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it's a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives, what? They feared God. And they did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So we have a, a king over Egypt who fears man, and we have two women, two midwives who fear God. Way more powerful than a king, right? So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they're vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. Some of you are like, I wish, I wish. Um, so God dealt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. And, and, and don't let it be lost on us that the Lord has always worked uh, and accomplished incredible things through uh, very few people, right? The, these, wives, uh, these midwives who were to help the Hebrew women give birth to children, there were two of them uh, in the midst of Egypt under a king, uh, and the, the amount of things that they accomplished that would in turn be a ripple effect that would lead to Moses surviving and leading the Israelites out of Egyptian slavery, slavery that is tremendous. And it started with two women who feared God. Right? Um, so the midwives, if you're taking notes, the midwives, they feared God, and this is always the good way. The midwives feared God, and this is always the good way. And notice I didn't say that it was the safe way. Right? It's not the safe way, but it's the good way. Right? Honoring God's rarely safe, according to 
to worldly standards. Honoring God can, can cost us status, it can cost us reputation, it can cost us influence or respect, can cost us a job, and for those who experience really intense persecution, could cost, their, cost them their own lives or the lives of their, their family members. And I think of, uh, uh, if you're familiar with C.S. Lewis's uh, The Chronicles of Narnia, whenever Lucy uh, sees Aslan, the lion, for the first time, she, uh, she looks to Mr. Beaver and she says, is, is he safe? And Mr. Beaver responds, well, what did Mrs. Be- Beaver tell you? Of course he's not safe. He's a, he's a lion. He's not safe, but he's good. He's the king, right? And fearing God is good, Fearing God is good, and, and we do so in the face of tyrants like Pharaoh who fear man and govern wickedly. And so in this passage, we have Pharaoh exasperated that the, the increasing of burdens didn't have the desired effect, that, that slavery didn't have the, it didn't hinder multiplication the way that he wanted it um, to have happened. So now his aim is to secretly murder the children of Israel instead and to specifically target male children. Right? Pharaoh, he, he thought he could use the midwives as a means by which he would accomplish this and he could blame it on how hard, labor, how hard the labor was and then not face an uprising. He was hoping that, that initially he could, he could blame all these male children dying on uh, difficulties in labor and, so, uh, and, and, and then uh, seem, uh, not, not face an uprising from the, uh, the women of Israel. So he wanted to murder them secretly initially. And I'd have you note that if you think we're far from removed from that sort of treachery, right, the, the race and gender targeted murder of children, we're not. Right? We just put on white lab coats and we call it women's health, right? We're not far removed from this type of treachery. Pharaoh knew the devastation that could be caused through the organized killing of male children, of of male children of Hebrew descent. And and thankfully, like we see in this passage, these midwives, they feared God. They, They stood in the gap. They acted based on their fear of God. And because they feared God, they alerted the Hebrew women to this wicked plan that Pharaoh had to execute male children of Hebrew women. Now, a few things are interesting in this passage that I want to note. The first is that Moses ensures that the faith of these midwives, uh, he, he, as he's writing this book, he wants us to know that these midwives feared God. All right? He said they feared God twice in this passage. And their, their fear of God meant that they were to dis, disobey the most powerful man in Egypt. Their fear of God meant that they were to go against the orders of the king. And in so doing, again, they saved the lives of many children, namely that of Moses, that of his life. And it shouldn't surprise us that a tyrant like Pharaoh not only disobeys God, but tries to force his disobedience on other people. Right? He wanted to bring in the midwives. He wanted to include the midwives on his disobedience to God. Right? He wanted to include the midwives on that. And their fear of God meant that, that they were to go against those orders. They were to go against those orders. Right? And, and this, this fearing of the good king, right, which is our triune God, 
allowed them to be an instrument of his to accomplish a good purpose. And the Lord blessed them, we see in this passage of Scripture. He blessed them for their obedience. He preserved their lives, and and he brought an evil king to destruction, which gets kind of to the second thing that we need to notice in this passage, which is that God did, in fact, give these women an excuse to tell Pharaoh regarding why they didn't kill the male children of Israel. God, God preserved the lives of these midwives by allowing the Hebrew women to give birth really quickly. It seems from the text that there were only two midwives in Egypt. And there were a lot of people of Israel. There were a lot of women that were giving birth in Israel. And some commentators think that the midwives are lying in their response when they say that the Hebrew women were giving birth really quickly, that they were lying uh, to Pharaoh. But I don't think that that's the case. I think that these women, because of their fear of God, God made the Hebrew women give birth quicker, perhaps to, to save the lives of, of two midwives and also consequently save the lives of the children. And so I think that there were in a, in a way is this supernatural progression of how quickly the Hebrew women are giving birth, which allows for the midwives to say, we can't even get there quick enough. They're, they're done having babies by the time that we arrive. And so there's no way for us to do this. I think that was the Lord honoring these women who feared God, right? These women put themselves at risk in their obedience to God, and they're facing Pharaoh when he summoned them. And I think much like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these women were, I think they were willing to face the consequences for their actions, right? People who who fear God are willing to face the consequences for their actions. And their actions, they weren't private, they were public. And, And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, unwilling to acknowledge the validity of, of this idol in the midst of Babylon, when Nebuchadnezzar tells them to worship or acknowledge the validity of it, they were willing to be thrown into the fiery furnace, right? And, and you guys, many of you know the story. Our God is, is powerful enough to deliver us, but even if he doesn't deliver us, we're not going to worship, we're not going to worship your God, right? I think that this is the heart posture of these midwives as it relates to them Um, facing Pharaoh, and as it relates to them not carrying out the orders of the king. So the midwives feared God, and it's not safe, but it's always good. Now flip over with me to chapter 2. Chapter 2, I'm going to read the first 10 verses here. And then I want to make a connection for us. And again, this is I'm not, I don't even feel like I'm getting into the nitty-gritty of the text as much as given just an overview. But chapter 2, start with verse 1. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer... She took for him a basket made of bulrushes and dabbed it with uh, bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed among the reeds by the riverbank. And placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. 
Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women and nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother and Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the children and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. So we see Moses born to a um, Hebrew man, Hebrew woman. Uh, we see at three months, she put him in a basket, sent him down the river, knew that that river um, would uh, perhaps be the way that the Lord saved his life. Uh, Pharaoh's daughter finds him. The sister is nearby. She tells the sister uh, to go and um, fetch a Hebrew woman to nurse him. That Hebrew woman is Moses' mom. And, uh, and so you can see the Lord's providence in, in the way that he took care of, of Moses. Right. If you're taking notes, jot this down. This story is bigger than Moses and the Israelites. This story is bigger than Moses and the Israelites. Right. Think of where, where we've been for these two chapters. The, the Israelites have experienced immense suffering at the hands of Pharaoh and at the hands of the Egyptians. And the weight of that, I think, can often be lost on us because we know the story, right? Remember at the beginning of the sermon, I'm saying, we're, you know, we, it's, it's, it's good for us to hold in our head Moses leading the Israelites out of Egyptian slavery, but perhaps that's the only thing really that we know about the book of Exodus. And so there's a lot of stuff that can be lost on us when we're working through the text. But in the midst of all this chaos, in the midst of all this turmoil, in the midst of mass murder, there's a baby. There's a baby. There's a baby who cries and increases the compassion of Pharaoh's daughter. A baby who, who God would reunite with his sister and mother. A baby named Moses that we know, again, would lead the Israelites out of slavery. And we know that, but we don't often we don't often feel the weight of that. It doesn't grip us or stir us toward a deeper love of God and a deeper hatred for sin. But there's something even deeper than this that we fail to take note of, which is the events surrounding the birth of Moses and how they compare to the events surrounding the birth of Christ. So if you have your Bible, flip over with me to Matthew chapter 2. I'm going to read this and make a few comments on it, and then I'll close us down. Matthew chapter 2. I'm going to start with verse 7. I'm going to read 7 to 9, and then I'm going to jump down a few verses. And think about the circumstances surrounding the birth of Moses as I read the circumstances surrounding the birth of Christ, okay? Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And I added this in later. This is why it's not up on your screen, so it's not their fault. It's my fault. So don't, don't blame them. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. So we see a deceitful king, king named Herod, right? Verse nine, after listening to the king, the wise man, they went on their way and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose, went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. Okay, so we see the encounter that the wise men had with Herod who is uh, claiming that he wants to worship this king uh, who is a baby as well. So, hey, let me know when you find him, bring him to me so that I can worship him. Jump down to verse 13. 
Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt, right? We're in Egypt presently in Exodus, flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Herod's about to search for the child to destroy him. Then jump down with me to verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, much like the midwives, became furious and he sent and he killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old and under. So we see mass murder as well. So the events surrounding the birth of Christ and the events surrounding the birth of Moses, they parallel, they parallel, right? The events surrounding the birth of Christ in his early years included a king that secretly wanted to kill him. It included his parents fleeing so that they might hide him. It included Herod killing all the male children to and under. So we see a passage like what we have here in Exodus 1 and 2, and we should know when we're reading it that it's priming our hearts for Christ, so what's happening. It's priming our hearts for Christ. The story of redemption is being preached to us. Right? Just as Moses was kept from harm when he was a baby so that he might rescue the Israelites from Egyptian slavery, so too was the greater Moses, Jesus Christ, preserved as a child so that he might rescue God's people from the slavery of sin. Right? This story is preached to us over and over and over. And it's because this is one cohesive book about how a holy and just God has every right to pour his wrath out on his creation for all eternity, but instead loves and rescues and saves us. So much so that this Old Testament book, it's filled, not just a little bit, it's filled with example after example of his good, unchanging character that, that, that ultimately has movement toward his demonstrating his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ Jesus died for us, Romans chapter 5, verse 8. So over the next few weeks, we're going to cover a lot of ground in the book of Exodus, and, and I want you to pay attention to how the gospel is being preached to you as we work through these chapters together. And my hope is, is that we, we're reminded, again, of Jesus, who's the greater Moses, that our heart, uh, our affections for Christ will, would be warmed and that, that we would be led by the power of God's Holy Spirit into a deeper communion with God. So a few takeaways this morning, applications, if you will, um, as we close down. The first is this. Christians are to make spiritual offspring. Christians are to make spiritual offspring. This starts in the home, and it branches out from there. Hey, Christians are to make spiritual offspring. That is the natural rhythm of our lives, and it starts in our home, and it should branch out from there. Secondly, Christians can have assurance of faith because God keeps his covenant. So if you're a Christian this morning, you can, have, you can have an assurance of faith, not because you're so great, not because I'm so great, but because God's so great and he keeps his covenant with his people. Third, if you're not a Christian, you really can be free from your burden of sin. Truly, today, you can be free from your burden of sin. Fourth, our faith is not meant to be private. 
Our faith is not meant to be private. Our private faith, it demonstrates that we fear man and not God. Our faith is meant to be public, and we must trust in the Lord as we live publicly for the glory of God. So our faith is not meant to be private. And then fifth, and it was my challenge to you just a moment ago, we have to notice the theme of redemption as we read the Scripture, especially as we read the Old Testament. God's always preaching the gospel to us. So Christians are to make spiritual offspring. Christians can have assurance of faith because God keeps his covenant. If you're not a Christian, you can be free from your burden of sin. Our faith is not meant to be private. Our faith is meant to be public. And we must notice the theme of redemption as we read the scripture. And we're going to make sure that um, we're going to begin to send out some newsletters that have some of these application points in them so that you can be working through it as well. But with that said, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the time that we had to spend in it together. And God, I pray that as we work through Exodus at a, uh, uh, these first few chapters at a, a more rapid